Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. Terror in the Tatras by Winifred Finlay On the outskirts of a village in the foothills of the Tatra Mountains in Poland, there once dwelt a forester and his wife, with two children, a girl and a boy whom they loved dearly. When summer came, the children played in front of the two-roomed wooden cottage the forester himself had built, and his wife spun and wove and sewed, while her husband worked in the pine forest that stretched up the great mountain ranges to the east and to the north. But all too soon the winter was on them, when the days were dark, the winds bitter, and the snow came whirling down, covering cottages and ground and trees. First the pond and then the river froze, and as it grew steadily colder and colder, and the snow continued to fall, from high up in the forest came the first howls of foraging wolf packs. Then all the work out of doors had to be done in the short hours of daylight, and the forester and other men of the village were careful never to venture far into the forest alone, and they always returned home before nightfall and saw all doors were barred, all windows firmly closed. As the cold increased, the howls of the hungry wolves grew louder as they searched for food, for an unwary hare or fox, for a reindeer weakened by injury, or a bear grown too old to defend itself. But sometimes, when the hunt had been unsuccessful, and the villagers looked out of their windows in the pale light of the early morning, they saw the dreaded prince in the fallen snow, and they hurried out to make sure their pigs and geese and ducks and hens were safe in the outhouses and cellars. Each year the long cool winter claimed its victims, generally from among the very old or the very young. It was early one spring, when the girl was nine and her brother seven, that their mother took her bed and died. What is to become of us now? the forester asked despairingly when they returned to the cottage after the funeral. I already put some of our bread and goat's milk cheese in your bag, the little girl said. Take your axe and go into the forest and work as you have always done. My brother and I will look after you and our home and all our stock. Shaking his head doubtfully, the forester did as he was bid. Heavy-hearted, he worked in the forest, and heavy-hearted, he returned home. But the minute he opened the door and saw the floor swept, the beds made, and the dumplings bobbing around in the soup in the iron cauldron above the fire, he gathered the children in his arms and wept for the last time. I shall miss your mother for the rest of my life, he said but together we shall look after one another. Will the pain inside of me always hurt, the little boy asked that night. It will grow less until you scarcely feel it, his sister assured him, and she hoped that this would indeed be so. As the summer months passed, the children still missed their mother, but because they worked so hard in the cottage and in the common fields, which belonged to everyone in the village, their grief, although they did not realize it, was not quite as sharp as it had been. They prepared for the winter exactly as their mother had done, drying herbs and plants, berries and mushrooms and fungi, and salting their share of the birds and beasts for which the villagers had decided there would not be enough food 
and so had slaughtered and divided among the households. The last carp were caught in the village pond, the last trout in the river before they were frozen over, and once again the bitter winds flew down from the north, bringing with them the swirling snowflakes, and it was not long before the hungry wolves ventured nearer and nearer the village by night in search of something, anything to eat. One evening the forester returned late from a meeting the priest had called to arrange for a fatherless family to be cared for. The children were asleep on the straw mattresses in front of the kitchen fire, and pausing only to adjust the woven blankets and the sheepskins which covered them, he went quietly to his lonely bed in the other room and quickly fell asleep. Presently he stirred uneasily, and then sat up wondering why it was so light, and then realizing that although he had double-barred the door, he had forgotten to close the shutters of his little window, and the moon had risen and was peering in with its pale, unearthly light. Drawing around him the fur pelts, which his wife had sewn together as their bed covering, he stared fascinated by the dazzling circle of light, wondering why he had never before noticed how big and splendid, and at the same time how frightening the moon was. He leaned forward to look more closely, but suddenly the rays were cut off as the head of an animal, covered with white fur and with deep-set eyes, appeared at the window. And first one paw was raised, and then a second, as though an entreaty. When the animal saw that it held his attention, it threw back its head so that the moonlight caught its strange dark eyes as it howled mournfully, but very softly. A wolf, he cried in horror. He leaped out of bed, pulled out his clothes and boots, and seizing his lantern and gun, walked quickly and quietly through the kitchen. But as he drew back to the second of the heavy wooden bars, which held the door securely closed, his daughter stirred. What is it, father? she asked sleepily. A wolf, a great white wolf. I mean to go out and shoot it. Bar the door after me, child. Oh, father, it is not safe for you to go out alone at night, the little girl cried, but the snowflakes swirling in the moonlight dazzled her, and though she could hear her father shouting at the creature and caught occasional glimpses of his lantern as he entered the forest, it seemed to her that all the world outside was filled with the eerie howling of the wolf. And as it grew fainter and fainter, she thought she could distinguish a mocking note such as she had never heard before in the cry of any wild animal. Troubled, she barred the door and hesitated, then opened the shutters of the kitchen window so that the firelight might shine out and return to her bed and waited. Further and further into the woods, the forester plunged, where frozen snow weighed down the branches of the pine trees. On and on he forced his way, following the tracks of the great white wolf until the moonlight no longer penetrated the snow-shrouded canopy of interlocking branches, and he was completely dependent on his lantern. What a magnificent creature it was, and white. It was the first time he had ever seen a white wolf. He was determined the creature should fall to his gun and was filled with a wild exultation at the thought. Obviously, the creature must be the leader of the pack. The pack? He halted. What had come over him? It was madness for him to hunt for a wolf by night, madness to leave his children alone and unprotected. Hastily he turned, and just as he started to retrace his steps, he heard a terrified cry. Help! Help! Oh, help me! Who is it? he shouted. Where are you? I'm here, close by. Help me! Holding up his lantern, he saw a fur-clad figure stumbling through the trees toward him. The wolves! The wolves have followed me all night and will not let me be. Oh, save me, Forrester, please save me, for I am all alone now, and fear I can struggle no further. 
Startled, the forester looked down at the weeping woman and then stared around them, listening intently. Had he frightened away the white wolf in its pack? Come with me, lady, he said gruffly. The sooner we are out of the forest, the better. And taking her arm, he hurried back, following his own track, half dragging, half supporting her, to where the firelight shone like a beacon through the kitchen window. Let me in, children, he called as he approached the door. I have a traveler with me who has just escaped from wolves. He heard the heavy wooden bars being drawn, and at last they were safe inside the warm kitchen. With a sigh of exhaustion, the traveler sank in front of the fire, pulled off first her fur mittens and then her fur hat, and her hair fell to her waist in a cascade of palest gold. As she shrugged herself free of her fur coat, the little boy awakened by the arrival, sat up and stared at the woman in her richly embroidered dress, and reaching out a hand, touched the pale gold hair. Are you a princess? he asked, and now he touched the velvet gown. The lady smiled and held out her arms, and as the boy hesitated, she leaned forward, lifted him onto her lap, and kissed him lightly on the brow. These are your children, she asked, turning to the forester. They are adorable, and she stretched out an arm to the daughter, but the little girl shrank away, busying herself with the fire and pretending not to notice. Are you a princess? the little boy repeated, and the lady shook her head and smiled sadly. There is a bed for you in the second room, the forester said. I shall sleep here on the floor with the children. You will be safe with us. I am not tired yet, the lady said. Let me stay here a while by the fire and watch the children sleep, and do you keep me company? The boy fell asleep at once, but the girl was troubled, and though she closed her eyes, sleep would not come. Soon she heard her father speak to the lady. Tomorrow you must let me know what I can do to help you, for though you say you are not a princess, I know you must be a great lady, and I think you have never before been inside a cottage as humble as this. I'm a lady, and my father is rich, but in this castle I have never known such kindness that surrounds me here. My father wished me to marry a friend of his, an old man whom I feared and disliked. When he would not listen to my pleading, I offered my groom money and jewels if he would help me to escape and drive me to relations who are more understanding than my parents. He readily agreed. We set off last night, but in the snowstorm we lost our way. It was not long before a pack of wolves picked up our scent and began to follow us, knowing that soon the horses must tire. When one stumbled, my groom bade me jump and flee while he fought off the pack. Even as I protested, the leading horse fell and the sled with all my possessions and jewels overturned, and I was thrown to one side. My head struck against a tree, and I lost consciousness. When I recovered, I was alone. Somehow the groom must have driven on, but far away I could hear the long-drawn-out howling of the wolves, and I knew, I knew, she shivered. To you I owe my life. Go to your bed now and sleep, the forester said. There is nothing I or anyone can do tonight. But know that you can remain under my roof as long as you wish, and know that here you will always be safe. That night the little girl was awake long after everyone else was asleep, for she was filled with a fear she could not understand. The next morning the forester set out for the place in the forest where he had encountered the lady, intent on tracing her sled and discovering the fate of her groom and horses. So heavily had the snow fallen, it had almost obliterated the tracks they had made the previous night, but at last he reached the small clearing where the snow was churned and bore the deep prints of wolves and men. Fresh snowflakes were settling on ugly brown stains, which had recently been red. What the wolves did, 
Not the bower robbers have stolen, he said, when he returned. On hearing this, the lady wept bitterly. Alas, now I have neither the means nor the money to continue my journey, she lamented. What is to become of me? Stay with us until summer comes, and then, whatever you want to do, I shall help you, the forester said, whereupon the little boy hugged her, but the little girl turned away, wondering why the lady had no thought for the groom, who had saved her life at the expense of his own. During the day the lady saw to the meals and the care of the cottage and played with the children, and the little boy loved her, but the little girl feared her and watched silently. When her father came home and the lady waited on him and sat at his feet and listened to him as he talked about his work and the people in the village in a way he had never talked to her or her brother. With the coming of spring and the melting of the snow and ice, the lady wept again. I have been so happy here, she said, and now I must leave you, and I do not want to do that, for you three are dearer to me than my own relations. Then stay with us always, the forester begged. Be my wife and the mother of my dear children. And the little girl saw that so infatuated was her father that in less than a year he had forgotten all about their real mother, and she feared the lady more than ever. The next day the forester and the lady went down into the village to visit the priest and to ask him to marry them. But there they found the old man had been taken ill very suddenly. However, another priest who happened to be passing agreed to marry them there and then before continuing on his journey. Delighted with his beautiful lady wife, the forester returned to his cottage, and though the little boy was nearly as happy as his father, the little girl was uneasy and afraid, and with good reason. For now she was safely married, the lady sent the children to work in the fields all the time their father was away from home, and only when he returned did she make a pretense of speaking to them kindly. Let us tell our father how cruel she is to us, the boy whispered to his sister one day, for they had been sent out to work without anything to eat. Not yet. Have patience, his sister advised, and she gave him a stale crust that their stepmother had thrown out for the pig. One night, not long afterward, when the moon hung full in the sky, some sound awakened the girl, and she saw her stepmother, barefooted and clothed, only in a long white nightgown, open the door, and then through the window she watched her run from the cottage and down the silent village street. Trembling, she lay down again and waited, and just before daybreak she saw her stepmother return, her hands and nightgown stained and red with what could only be blood. Horrified, she watched as the lady took off the nightgown, placed it on the fire, and watched it burn. After that, she washed her hands, threw the water away, and then crept into the bed where her husband, the forester, slept so soundly. A month later, when the moon was full again, the stepmother once more slipped out of the cottage, but this time the girl followed her, for she remembered something she had heard in the village the previous day, how a young girl had unexpectedly died to the sorrow of her family, and she remembered, too, how four weeks before another young girl had died, the first such death for many months. Keeping in the dark shadows, the girl hurried down the silent street. But just as the stepmother reached the churchyard, a cloud hid the moon, and when the first beam shone down again, the lady had vanished, and in her place stood a huge white wolf. For a moment, the creature stood motionless, sniffing the air, and then it bounded over the low wall and ran toward a recently filled grave and began to dig with its forepaws. Terrified, the girl turned and ran back home and lay shivering in bed. She was still awake, although she pretended to sleep when her stepmother returned just before daybreak, 
and again she watched as the lady burned her blood-stained nightgown and washed her hands. When she told her brother what she had seen, he laughed. That was a bad dream, he said, as they worked together in the fields. How could our new mother have burned her nightgown when she has only one, and I can see it now hanging on the washing line? The girl stood up and looked across at the garment and could not understand how this was so. Watch with me the next time after someone in the village has died and the moon is full, she begged. I will try to stay awake, he promised, but I work so hard during the day that I fall asleep as soon as I crawl into bed. Waken me when the time comes. Anxiously, the girl waited for news from the village, and she sighed with relief when she knew that no one was ill and no one had died. This night I shall be able to sleep, she thought, taking a last look at the full moon. But soon a familiar sound wakened her, and she saw her stepmother slipping out of the door for the third time. Wake up! Wake up! She urged, tugging at her brother's arm, but he slept on for all the world as though he were drugged. And so she set off alone, keeping to the dark shadows of the silent street until she saw her stepmother stop outside the churchyard. This time no cloud covered the moon. This time she saw her stepmother tear off her nightgown and immediately change into a great white wolf. And she screamed out in fear and shrank back against the wall as the terrible creature leaped on her. Awakened by that cry, the church verger flung open his window and leaned out. A wolf, he shouted, a great white wolf attacking a child. And he discharged the gun he always kept ready to hand, whereupon the wolf dropped the girl, seized the nightgown between its teeth, and bounded away through the village. It is a forester's daughter, and she must have been sleepwalking when the wolf attacked her, the verger's wife said. How are we to tell her father? They carried the dead girl into their cottage washed those savage bites and dressed her in white, and they placed a single white wild flower in her clasped hands. The following day the girl was buried, and the stepmother sobbed louder than anyone, louder even than the forester, but in the boy's eyes there was suspicion as well as grief. Seven days later he went to the forge opposite the church where the smith was busy at work. I have come to you for advice, he said, for you are the wisest man in the village. All evil things fear you because of your power over cold and hot iron. What advice can I give you? The smith asked. Two nights ago, I had a dream, the boy said. I dreamed that the moon was full and my sister went out and a big white werewolf attacked her and killed her. I woke and was afraid. Last night, I dreamed again. Once more, there was a full moon and the white werewolf went hungry to the churchyard to dig up my sister and devour her. Have you told your father, the smith asked. He would not believe me. Or the priest? He is old and ill and would not understand. For a long time I have known there was evil in the village, the smith said slowly. But until now I did not know how great that evil was. You did well to come to me for counsel. Return to your home and behave as though your grief was for a sister killed by accident. When next the moon is full... Go to the forest where your father is working and ask him to come here with you as we are holding a solemn service in honor of his daughter. Do not let him return to his cottage. And you will protect my sister. I give you my word that your sister and indeed many others will be protected. From every man who stopped at the forge, the smith asked a silver coin, a silver button, or piece of silver buckle or brooch, and everyone knew the reason and gave willingly these tokens the smith melted down and made into a silver bullet. The women, knowing what was afoot and aware of the peril in which they all stood, 
brought to the forge what bread and spirits they could spare. On the night of the next full moon, all the men gathered in the forge, and there the forester and his son joined them. Silently they ate and drank, silently they waited. It was nearly two hours later when they saw her running down the street, her pale gold hair blowing in the wind, now covering and now revealing her lovely face, and so lightly did she move that her bare feet scarcely seemed to touch the ground. The forester would have hurried out to her, but the others held him back. Wait, they murmured. Wait and watch. She had reached the churchyard now, and there she stopped, tore off her nightgown, and the next moment in her place stood a huge white wolf. Lifting its head, it sniffed the air, and then it bounded over the low wall making for the place where the girl had been buried twenty-seven days previously. Now, the men asked quietly. Now, the smith agreed, and lifting his gun to his shoulder, he took careful aim and fired, and the silver bullet penetrated the white fur and lodged in the creature's heart. Lifting up its head for the last time, the werewolf gave one long, agonized howl and then collapsed. It was dead by the time the men reached it. I suspected nothing of this, the forester said. I thought her beautiful and unfortunate. I took her into my home in her need, but she brought only evil and terror and death with her. He helped the men bury the werewolf at a lonely place far from the village, and when they had set a huge stone over the grave, he took his son by the hand and together set off for a new life in some far-off village where no one would know of the cruel white werewolf and the evil it had brought to innocent people. Getting Dead by William F. Nolan He'd been trying to commit suicide for the past 6,000 years, off and on. No real pattern to it, just whenever he got really depressed about having to live forever, or when one of his straight friends died. For the most part, he found other vampires a gloomy lot and had always enjoyed outside non-blood contacts. But suicide had never worked out for him. His will to survive, to live forever, was incredibly intense and fought against his sporadic attempts at self-extinction. He had locked himself out of his castle several times and thrown away the key, figuring if he couldn't get inside to his casket before sunrise, he'd be cooked to a fine black ash. He'd seen dozens of movies about vampires and always enjoyed it whenever the sun melted one of them. Yet, each time he locked himself, he found a way to slip back into the damn castle, as a bat, or a wisp of smoke, or twice as a toad. His infernal shape-change ability invariably defeated these lockout attempts. Then, several times down the centuries, he devised ways to drive a stake through his heart, but never got it right. Helsinki, stake through his shoulder, London, stake through his upper thigh, Dusseldorf, stake through his left foot, he limped for six months, and so on. Never once in the heart so he gave that up. He tried boiled garlic in Yugoslavia, prepared a tasty stew and had the garlic dumped in by a perverted dwarf pal of his, devoured the entire bowl, belched and set back to die. But all he did was throw up over the dwarf, who found the whole incident most disgusting. In the black forest of Germany, he leaped from the roof of a village church onto a cross, ending up with some painful scrim blisters where the cross had burned through his cape but it didn't come close to killing him. He drank a quart of holy water at Lourdes, resulting in a severe case of diarrhea. And naturally, he had talked several of his straight friends into attempting to kill him at various times, but either he killed them first, or they bungled the job. So here he was, Count Arnold whatever, 
He hadn't been able to remember his last name for the past 700 years. Walking the night streets of Beverly Hills in the spring of 1991, determined to do away with himself but lacking a conclusive plan of action. That was when he saw the ad. It was block painted on the wooden back of a bus stop bench. Anything ink. Come to us if all else fails. For the proper fee, we'll do anything. Open 24 hours. We're never closed to you. And the address was right there in Beverly Hills on Rodeo Drive near Wilshire. Arnold was in a hurry, so he shaped change and flapped over. He came through the office door as a bat, lots of screaming from the night secretary, and changed back into human form at the desk. No appointment. He'd just flown in to demand service. Who the hell are you? asked the tall man. He was flushed and balding behind the desk of anything ink. I am Count Arnold, and I'm here to test the validity of your bus stop advertisement. That, for the proper fee, you can do anything. Mr. Anything, for that is how Arnold thought of him, settled back in his chair and lit a large Cuban cigar. I got two questions. So ask, what do you want done, and how much can you pay me to do it? I want to stop being a vampire, and I will pay with these. Arnold produced a bag of emeralds and rubies, spilling the jewels across the desk. Mr. Anything put a glass to his eye and examined each stone. That took ten full minutes. Then he looked up and smiled. How old are you? I am just a shade over ten thousand years old, said Arnold. And for the first four thousand years, I was content to be a vampire. Then I got bored. Then depressed. I have not been really happy for 6,000 years. Mr. Anything shifted his cigar. I don't believe in vampires. I didn't either until I became one. Show me your teeth. Arnold did. The two hollow fangs, needles sharp, with which he sucked blood were quite evident when he opened his mouth. You live off human blood? That is correct. What's it taste like? It depends. Most of the time... It tastes fine, and again, I've had some that was downright bitter, but I never complain. I take it as it comes. Mr. Anything got up from the desk, walked to the door, and closed it firmly. Prove to me you're a vampire. Arnold shrugged. The only way to do that would be for me to suck all the blood from your body over a period of weeks, starting tonight. All right, said Mr. Anything, with a note of sourness in his voice. I'll take your word for it. I have tried literally everything to get rid of me, Arnold told him. But I'm very clever. I keep outsmarting myself. I just go on living. On and on and on. Living, living, living. I get your point, said the tall man. So, you have the jewels? They're worth a king's ransom. In fact, at one time, in Bulgaria, they were a king's ransom. But that's neither here nor there. What I wish to know is, and Arnold leaned close to him, how do you intend to dispose of me? Mr. Anything took a step back. Your breath. I know it's fetid. There's just no way to keep it fresh, he frowned. Well, I could chain you to a post in full daylight and let the sun. No, no, that's absolutely no good, said Arnold. I just shape change into a sewer rat and head for the nearest sewer. Sunlight's not the answer. Mr. Anything paced the room puffing a cannon burst of cigar smoke. I'm sure that a stake through the heart would. Arnold shook his head. I tried the stake thing over and over and I'm telling you, it's a waste of time. 
Come on. You gotta be kidding. You mean, even with you, all snug in the coffin and me, leaning over you with a big mallet to pound it into your chest while you sleep? Won't work. Vampires are light sleepers. When we feel the point of a sharpened stake tickle our skin, we jump. Arnold sighed. I just reach up from the coffin and tear your throat out. Mr. Anything thought that over. Yeah, well, that would not be so good. He kept pacing. Then he stopped, turned to Arnold, and clapped him on the shoulder. I got it, he grinned. Your troubles are over. Really? Arnold looked skeptical. Believe me, you're as good as dead. I mean, dead, dead. My word on it. And they shook hands. A week later, on a clouded night, Arnold woke up. Mr. Anything had obviously used some kind of drug on him, so he couldn't shape change. His neck was sore. He reached up to touch it. Something had bitten him. The wound was newly infected. There was blood on his fingertips. This was stupid. You don't kill a vampire by having another vampire bite him, or her. That's how it all starts in the first place. He felt the wound again. Multiple teeth bites. Not just the usual twin fang marks. Something else had bitten him. Changed him. The clouds parted and the moon was full. Hair was sprouting out of skin in rough brown clumps. And he felt his jaw lengthen. Arnold howled. And he happened to be knowledgeable enough about the real world of night creatures to know that a silver bullet was totally ineffectual. Damn.